Well, good morning, church. Super grateful to be the one to open up God's word for us that we may be instructed by the truthfulness of his holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick Poma. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church Monterey Bay, and I happily serve alongside Pastor Dominic Avlo, who is not here this morning. He is visiting uh, Pastor Scott Artavanis down at Grace Church of the Valley, who's um, celebrating his 60th birthday. And Pastor Scott Artavanis is a mentor and friend to uh, Pastor Dominic Avlo, and so he's visiting him this Sunday. But for us, we have the amazing opportunity to be in the Gospel of John. So I would invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to John's Gospel, John chapter 15. And if you're not familiar, too familiar with your Bible just yet, you have a ESV Bible before you in the pew and will be in page 901. John 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 will be our text for this morning. Jesus is there, John 15, verse 1. Christ says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Let's pray for a moment. Our gracious God, we thank you for this time where we can publicly open up your word and not even be persecuted for such a thing. And we can hear the words of our Lord and Savior, God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, speak to us even 2,000 years later after it was written. Father, our desire as a church is to hear the words of Christ, to see Christ for who he is, for him to be magnified and glorified in our midst in this hour that we have with each other, and that all of it would be for our good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the early years of Ligonier Ministries, Maybe you are well familiar with them, whose founder is Dr. R.C. Sproul. In those early years, when it began to really blossom and expand, a consultant was brought in to meet with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The goal was to develop a strategy for this growing ministry, and that consultant asked Dr. R.C. two questions. And that first question was, 
What is the greatest need of the people in the world? Without hesitation, Dr. R.C. Sproul answered and said, people in the world need to know who God is. Probing deeper to better understand his ministry, the consultant then asked, what is the greatest need of people in the church? And Dr. R.C. Sproul again answered without hesitation and said, people in the church need to know who God is. I just recently, in this last few weeks, I've listened to a number of sermons by Dr. R.C. Sproul, who has passed away just a few years ago, and listened to many of his Q&As in the conferences that they've done over the years. And you can tell by his answers to many of those really difficult questions that everyone really wants to ask him, you can tell that he's not really trying to make any money by his answers. He's not trying to sell tickets or become popular. He is simply giving a biblical answer and defense of the true nature and character of God. Every answer that I've ever heard from him. My wife just was listening to a few of them just in this last week that I had sent to her. And she herself was raised in a Christian home and even had a pastor for a father. And she even said to me, I have never heard anyone answer those kinds of difficult questions the way that he has, with such authority and clarity. Questions like the problem of evil. Who created evil? Why does God, why did God allow the fall? Why doesn't God save everybody? Why did Christ have to die and suffer? What's the How do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Why was hell created? Is it ever okay to be mad at God? You should listen to his answer on on that question. Why did God strike down Uzzah for touching the ark? Now, I'm not going to answer any of those questions if I'm teasing you for a minute there. But in my opinion, from everything that I've learned over the years from being a Christian for 11 years now, his answers are the most biblical, God-glorifying answers I have ever heard or read. I'd encourage you to listen to some of those Q&As. They're very encouraging and very, very helpful and instructive. And I simply start out with that, church, to say that it is my desire, it's Pastor Dom's desire, as you well know, but we both try to follow in examples like Dr. R.C. Sproul. It is our desire, very simply, to open up the pages of Scripture, to be amazed at the character and nature of the true God revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture. Amen? It's my desire in this passage that we would be amazed, particularly the character and nature of the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity, Jesus Christ. What we're jumping into, I know John chapter 15, it's been several weeks now that we've been here, and I know we're jumping into the middle of John's gospel, so I really want to just set the stage for a little bit to really understand what Jesus is saying here. We're in the upper room discourse in John chapter 15. 
Jesus has just finished encouraging his disciples of all that they were going to receive upon his departure when he would die and leave this world. He promised them peace in John chapter 14. He promised that he would go to prepare a place for them, that they were going to accomplish great works in his name. Their prayers in his name would be answered, though he would not be present. He would give them the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't leave them as orphans. They would always possess the love of the Father and of the love of the Son. They would have the indwelling of the Godhead. He promised that the devil would have no claim on the Son. And the promise that Jesus would return soon to them. And if you're there in John chapter 15, look there, John 14 and verse 31 Jesus says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And he says, rise, let us go from here. So we ask the question, well, where are they going? Well, very shortly, they will be entering the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the route, the passageway, would be from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. That's where they're headed. And we don't know exactly where Jesus uttered all of these words contained in John chapter 15, 16, and 17 before they actually are in the garden. But that passageway with the 11 disciples that they would have taken, they would have passed by much of the land that had a lot of trees, olive trees, fig trees, vineyards, grapevines. It was an agrarian society. So Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples a spiritual truth. And it's no surprise our Lord often used things that were at hand to illustrate or explain spiritual truths. At the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths, As the priest approached the altar, pouring out the symbolic water, Jesus cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Even the next day, after he utters those words in John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus stood in the temple treasury next to those large lit torches there in the temple, which symbolized the pillar of fire that God gave to Israel in the wilderness. Looking at those, Jesus stands and proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so it's no surprise that Jesus here with his disciples, seeing vineyards, landscapes, or vines that grew on the temple, where many grapevines would be, even in Gethsemane, using those images. He declares his last and very vital I am statement. I am the true vine. And even here in our passage, he states it twice. And so his declaration is the most important aspect of this passage, which is centered on the work and the nature of Christ. And you see that first, There in verse 1, he takes for himself once again that sacred name of God, the eternal God, the great I am, the self-existing one. 
If you remember in John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. What does he mean? That he existed before Abraham's time, who lived thousands of years ago. But the declaration even goes beyond before Abraham's time. Homer Kent says, by using the timeless I am rather than I was, Jesus conveyed not only the idea of existence prior to Abraham, but timelessness itself, which is the very nature of God himself. I am that I am. In other words, Jesus is declaring by that name, he is declaring himself to be eternal that he did not have an end or a beginning, that he is beyond time, that he actually created time itself and chose to enter into time itself. That's what he is declaring by this phrase. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word, what? Was God. That's the theme of John's gospel. That Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the second person of the Godhead. And it's interesting, that's why John, who wrote this gospel, doesn't give us a genealogy like Matthew and Luke do. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, because in terms of Jesus' deity, he had no beginning. He has no genealogy. He never had a beginning. And we've seen prior in John's Gospel and prior to the upper room discourse, Jesus has already been claiming to his deity in many ways with metaphors, with analogies. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the light. There was no mistaking that he was claiming to be God. And each metaphor was elevating Christ to the level of creator, sustainer, savior, and Lord every single time. And it's the same here. It's the, the last and final of seven of his I am statements. And it's kind of a sad one because I, I just wish there was more. But there is more. There is more to his deity in the rest of John's gospel. So here in John 15, he again affirms his deity. As God in human flesh, Jesus rightly points to himself as the divine source of spiritual life, vitality, growth, and productivity for his disciples. And so as we move through these verses, we're just going to see two short points. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus gives us the analogy. The analogy. In verses 3 through 6, you have the application. The application. First, and we're going to spend most of our time, the bulk of our time, discussing verses 1 through 2. So first, the analogy, or a metaphor, if you like that word better. It's very simple to understand this metaphor. The metaphor pictures a central vine with many branches. The vine 
we'll see, is the source of life for these branches. And the branches must abide in the vine to survive and in order to bear any fruit. And so in verses 1 and 2, Jesus identifies the parts of his metaphor. Jesus is the vine. We get that. The Father is the vine dresser or vine grower or farmer. The disciples, we'll see, are the fruit-bearing branches. And the identity of the fruitless branches are really those that are mostly called into question over the church centuries. And we'll get to who they are. Now, we'll look at the identity of each, because that's when I think that the true meaning of the metaphor, it will be its clearest. So first, in the order that's given to us, Jesus is the vine. And we ask the question, well, what what does he mean exactly that he is the true vine? It's, It's really important to note that Jesus is not introducing in any way some new idea or something unfamiliar to the minds of a Jew, of using a metaphor of a vine. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were continually pictured as the Lord's vine. Listen to some of these verses in Psalm 80, as that psalmist reiterates some of Israel's history Yahweh declares with them, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Well, who was in Egypt and who came out of Egypt? Israel. Real simple there. Jeremiah 2.21, God said to Israel, I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. In Isaiah chapter 5, which we'll turn to in a minute, but not yet. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet speaks of Yahweh cultivating Israel, his people as a vine. He sets this vine on a fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, built a watchtower in the midst of that vine, hewed out for it a wine vat, and he looked for it to yield grapes. He looked to it to yield fruit. So this is God's chosen people that Yahweh is talking about. Well, what does all that mean for Israel? It's very simple. Israel was to produce fruit. As God's chosen people, they were to be the channel through which God's covenant blessings flowed to the rest of the world. If you read passages like Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, Israel was called by God to be a light to the other nations who were in darkness. And that would require for Israel to be holy, faithful, obedient to the covenant, true worship, rightly fearing and honoring Yahweh, having no other gods before him, righteousness, justice. In other words, Israel was to be fruitful in their covenant keeping. Some of you have been reading through our Bible reading plan in a year 
for some time now, and you have been seen very clearly in reading of Israel's history. And you've seen that they have actually proved to be a fruitless, unfaithful vine. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. I want you to see this one yourselves. Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 3. As, yeah, verse 3. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes, useless grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You can turn back to John 15. We'll stay there for the remaining of our time. God had done everything to create a fruit-bearing environment for his people. And what did he find? He found injustice, idolatry, apostasy, bloodshed, disobedience, rebellion, all of the sins which made Israel an empty vine and have been for a long time been a disqualified people as that amazing privilege channel for God's blessings. And in the, New in the New Testament, we see in the New Covenant, Jesus the Messiah comes onto the scene during all of the barrenness and fruitlessness of Israel. And he declares during that time, I am the true vine. And all of those blessings that you desire now come only from a union with me, the true vine. Do you see? And he's not just the vine. He's what? The true vine. True. Alethanos. It refers to what is real as distinct from a type. Something that's perfect rather than that which is imperfect. Israel was imperfect. Christ was perfect. Israel was the type. Christ is the reality. 
Christ is the true light, John 1, 9, in that God had revealed much in the Old Testament. Yet Christ is the living embodiment of the full revelation of God. That's why we refer to him as truth incarnate. You're searching for truth? You look no further than the one who has declared himself to be truth incarnate. He is the true bread. God had sustained Israel with manna in the Old Testament. Christ is the real, true, and final sustainer of all source of life. Do you see? In Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there, as Isaiah is foretelling about the coming of the Messiah, and Isaiah is looking forward to when the Messiah had already been born. Isaiah 53, verse 2, says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Out of Christ's humble circumstances, he brought delight to the Father in his life through perfect obedience. In other words, when the Messiah was born and he obeyed the Father in all things, he was fruitful in his ministry. It really brings a whole new meaning and depth and richness when you hear those words again at the baptism of Jesus, when a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I delight in my son. The fruit, listen, the fruit that God desired from Israel but did not find, he gained for himself by sending his own son, the true vine, through which, through which his new chosen people would live through and bear much good fruit. Do you see? So that's the vine, and now the vine dresser, who Jesus has already identified as the Father. And the Father deals with, in this metaphor, two very different branches. You have the fruitless branches, which he cuts off, the fruitful branches, which he prunes to bear more fruit. The vine grower literally is one who tills the soil. It's a picture of a farmer giving care to his garden. He tends, he fertilizes, he waters, he plants, and he cares for these branches. And as the father who knows well of his garden, of his vine, of his branches, he knows very easily 
which of his branches bear fruit and those who do not. And we'll say a little bit more about the father's work, the vine dresser's work in a minute. But first, we'll order with the order, we'll deal with the order given to us by Jesus. And the first one he mentions is the fruitless branches. Look again there in verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And in verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. Now, in order to understand who the fruitless branches are, we must understand the context in which it was spoken. We are with Jesus and the 11 disciples. No longer is it 12 disciples. One of the 12 has just left for good, never to return. Judas was identified as the betrayer, and he was sent away by Jesus to betray him. And there is still much confusion on behalf of the disciples over what's going on with Judas. There is utter shock from the 11 disciples as far as what happened with Judas. And so Jesus, caring for the rest of his 11 disciples, he looks at the night's drama and he carefully chooses a perfect analogy, a perfect metaphor to explain to them what is really going on. He uses a perfect metaphor to picture Judas as a fruitless branch. Do you see? Judas is that fruitless branch that the disciples would now begin to understand. Judas has been present with the disciples from the start with ulterior motives. No genuine repentance. No real enduring faith. Back in John chapter 6, Jesus had already said, have I not chose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? That was a long time from here in John 15. Oh yes, from the outside looking in, he did look very attached to Christ. He was so close and attached to Christ and the disciples that nobody could really tell that Judas did not bear any real fruit. And the reference to the fruitless branches, branches is not genuine believers who lose their salvation. That's been overwhelmingly clear, particularly in John's gospel. John chapter 6, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, and the whole of scripture that is an impossibility for Judas to attain salvation and then to lose it. Nor is the fruitless branches a reference to genuine Christians who don't bear any fruit. We'll see in this passage that that too is an utter impossibility due to the Father's work of pruning. Now, the, the reference to fruitless branches is to those who are truly unregenerate. Those who do not possess saving faith. Now, don't get tripped up in verse 2 
when Jesus says, these fruitless branches are in me. It is not the same as what Paul refers to in all of his epistles with our union with Christ. When he says that you're in Christ, speaking of our union with Christ, it's not the same thing. It, it merely describes those who outwardly attach themselves to Christ. But that's it outwardly attach themselves to Christ. And we saw this in John chapter 13, especially in the life of Judas, where one can give the appearance of spiritual life without genuine salvation. And Judas is the overwhelmingly perfect example to fit this metaphor. In Romans chapter 6, or excuse me, Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, Paul says that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Meaning that a person can be a part of the nation of Israel with all of her blessings and not yet be a true Israelite. Not be a true heir of the promise. You can be in the vine According to the metaphor here, you can be in the vine without having a true, vital, abiding connection to Jesus Christ. If you remember when John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 comes from the wilderness preaching the kingdom of heaven, baptizing, he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, Israel's leaders, and he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. They had thought, they had given no thought to repent of their sins because they themselves thought to be the chosen people of God and they were attached to God's covenant people. But Jesus comes onto the scene in his Israel, or excuse me, in his ministry to Israel, and he is saying to them, you think that because you belong to the nation Israel, you are secure in your connection to God. Not so. I am the true vine. And true eternal life flows only through me. Do you see? He had flipped their world upside down. And I think we see this very clearly going on all around us. People want to attach themselves to Christ in some superficial way. Christianity in America in particular has become somewhat of a nationality. Something that you can just attach yourself to with no change of life, no real convictions. You can take that exam and all the religions of the world can be named on there and which one do you pick and you just check off Christianity because it just makes the most sense to you. And from there, people just think that heaven is going to be their home. You can be born into a Christian home you can own a Bible. You can have Joshua 24, 15 on your refrigerator. What is Joshua 24, 15? 
For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I see it all of the time. And it's not that you can't, as a born-again believer, have that verse on your refrigerator, but I mostly see it from those who attach themselves to Christianity but give no change or evidence of fruitfulness. You can be to a church a few times, Christmas and Easter, of course. You can have positive thoughts toward Jesus. You can be a conservative. You can hate abortion. You think it's wrong that two gay men or women shouldn't be married. Friend, none of those things make you a Christian. What proves authentic, genuine, real faith is always fruit. True Christians, true branches through whom the life of the vine flows will never be fruitless. Jesus is saying in very, very plain, easy-to-understand language, if you have a real, genuine, abiding connection with me, you will love me. And he has already said, and if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. You'll obey me. And First John says the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not burdensome to the people of God who have the Spirit of God residing in them. It is their delight. It is their growing delight. But what happens to all of these fruitless branches attaching themselves to Christ? Look there at verse 6. Again, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The imagery is one of destruction. It, it is not teaching annihilationism. It pictures the judgment that awaits all of those who were never saved, even if they outwardly attach themselves to Christ and his church. It pictures the destruction that will come upon those whose religion is nothing more than a superficial relationship. And you have to understand that Jesus is giving this very strict warning to 11 disciples that he has already deemed saved. There's no unbelievers in the midst here, and Jesus is still giving them a warning, giving them a metaphor of what they're going to expect in the world at large. Some people are deliberate, conscious hypocrites, but I think many are actually self-deceived. But either way, the same fate comes upon all of them. Listen, the Heavenly Father the vine dresser in our metaphor will remove all fruitless branches. The Father has, the Father is God Almighty in his omniscience, who knows everything in the secretness of our hearts, knows real well who it is that bears fruit and who does not. The Father knows real well who it is, who has a real love for his Son, the Father knows real well who it is that has really counted the cost. 
The Father knows who it is who has come to him with a genuine repentance to forsake the world, the flesh, sin, and all evil. He knows real well who it is that seek to obey his commands and live a life of self-denial for the glory of Christ's name. The Father knows real well who it is that desires to grow in Christ-like holiness, who have a genuine love for his church, those who long to see Christ return, those who live to see God's glory and to see Christ magnified because he above all is their true treasure. What about you? Do any of those things describe your heart right now? If none of these things that I had mentioned, and there's much more, describe the passions of your heart, that I do not understand how you could have any assurance that heaven will be your home. Friend, with a lot of love and care, I would call upon you to turn from your sin. That you would call on the Lord Jesus Christ, the true vine who possesses eternal life and is the only giver of eternal life. That you would come to him with eagerness to be saved from the judgment that will rightly fall on sinners who are not truly attached to Jesus Christ. I promise you, if that describes you, picture in your mind the Savior's arms and hands reaching out to you. I promise on the authority of Scripture, he is a very eager and willing Savior to hear your plea of repentance. Amen. The fruitful branches, a very different outcome and a very, very different tone for sure. If you look there in verse 2, he says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And the word there for prune, kathiro, means to clean, to purify. In farming, the term was used to refer to cleaning the husks of the grain or cleaning the soil of weeds and stones before planting crops. It's the very simple pruning process that we all know that all plants and branches need in order to produce fruit. It's very simple. If any of you have been to my backyard over the years, and I know a lot of you have, you would have seen a lot of garden beds everywhere, some plants, trees, and you would have seen a, a giant greenhouse. Literally, it was 12 feet by 12 feet, 8 feet tall, irrigation, corrugated plastic, the door, had everything. It's perfect. We were very proud of it, too. We decorated it and everything. 
Now, if you were to visit our backyard currently, right now, you would see none of it. It is all completely demolished. Garden beds are gone. Greenhouse is gone. See you later. Why? Because the pruning which causes your plants to grow and flourish takes time, care, attention, and love for plants. And guess what? I have none of those. None. We have succulents. That's it. You, you stick them there, and you don't have to water them because they grow off the moisture that's already in the air. They're perfect. My wife and I just do not have time that it requires to bear fruit. Costco has great produce. <laughs> Phenomenal. It's cut perfectly. No bugs. I didn't do any of the work. Exchange the money, produce, phenomenal. It's way easier. And it was just, I think, uh, two weeks ago, I was walking up the stairs, getting home from, from work, and I saw my wife had uh, got two plants, like two over here and, and two over here, and I, and I was walking up, and I just mumbled under my breath, those are going to die for sure. <laughs> it's just... I just know what it takes. With all that time and effort I gave to building those garden beds, I know what it takes, and I just don't have it. The pruning process, church, and all that, it is the loving, caring, essential work that the Father, the vine dresser, does to all of his true fruit-bearing disciples. You've seen maybe those grapevines throughout the year as you're driving up and down the highway. At one part of the year, they're flourishing, and there's, there's vines, there's branches, and there's grapes going all over the place. And then a different part of the year, you drive, and what's going on with them? They have been aggressively cut back. And how is it that the farmers, what is it that the farmers use to cut back those grapevines, they used a knife. They used a very sharp knife. This is the picture that Jesus is giving to us of the Father's work in us. Upon salvation, the heavenly Father, the vine dresser, begins to carefully, slowly take a knife to all the things that are spiritually detrimental to our spiritual lives. Pruning is painful, yeah? It always hurts. Nobody naturally wants the knife. When I hear knife, you guys are, you know, getting a little nervous there. He takes a knife to our bad habits. He takes a pruning knife to the things that we prioritize and value too much. He strips away unfruitful relationships. This pruning process takes many forms. It comes to us through providential circumstances. We might suffer loss. 
We face strong temptation. We experience reproof or correction, loss of material possessions, persecution or slander. When we find biblical parenting be overwhelming and hard, when loving our spouse can be difficult, when integrity in the workplace is hard, when we experience grief, anxiety, depression, sorrow, tough relationships, a dark past that haunts us. Too many people don't seem to care about us. Our own sin that we deal with on a constant basis. You name the difficulty that you're going through now, you have been going through, or you will be going through. You name it yourself. The purpose, listen, the purpose of all of these is to make us fruitful through an increased faith in the Father's work in us. James 1, verses 2 and 3. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You hear the word there? It produces steadfastness. Meaning that the trials must come in order to produce that steadfastness. Psalm 119, verse 67, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? In order that I might learn your statutes. Affliction has to come to us who are often rebellious and very sinful in order for the good to come, for the fruitfulness to come. Church, do you look at your trials and problems as, a, as pruning done by a loving vine dresser? Or do you lapse into self-pity fear, grumbling, and complaining? I ask that question because that's how I respond. A lot of the time, that's how I respond. I naturally respond in self-pity. I've been naturally responding with, God, why, why me? Why do I have such stressful problems when it sees like nobody else does. You ever feel that way? I'm in good company here, hopefully, because I feel alone in it. We must remember, and I've been contemplating this all week, we must remember that God is at work in us and trying to make us more fruitful. And if we remember that we, and if we remember that, and know this whole metaphor, we will be able to look past the painful pruning process and look to the ultimate goal. It is a very thrilling thing to realize that God Almighty in his holiness and his transcendence wants 
our lives to bear much fruit for our good, for our joy, and for his glory. That is the work that he is involved with all believers. Charles Spurgeon said that suffering is a covenant mark, a proof that God is our Father and cares enough about us to do everything necessary to mold and clip us into the likeness of his happily holy Son. Do you hear that? And last, look there very briefly at verse 3. Verse 3, I want to close with this. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He says, already you are clean. And the clean there is the noun form of the same word he used in verse 2 for prune. What is it exactly that God uses to cleanse us, prune us for fruitfulness? It's not the trials. It's not the suffering. What is the knife that he uses? What is it? His word. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The trials and suffering aren't the knife. Those are going to come in this world we live in and in the Christian life no matter what. But it's his word which cuts, which he uses to prune us to bear more fruit. When Jesus speaks of the Father's pruning, he refers to the Scripture as the agent of our spiritual growth and change. John 17, 17, Jesus said, as he's praying to the Father on behalf of the disciples, sanctify them by your what? Truth. Your word is truth. Paul had this in mind in 2 Timothy 3.16, that scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Church, do you wish to grow in Christ's likeness? I believe you do. And as a shepherd of yours, I desire one day to present all of us mature in Christ. And the only way that I'm going to be able to do that as a true shepherd is if I bring the knife to all of us for the loving, pruning process of our Heavenly Father. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, of course, we thank you for your continual grace as believers, as those whom you have called out of darkness into light. You have set upon a course to transform us into Christ-likeness. It is a glorious work of yours, that entire sanctification process, It is a painful one because we have many things in our lives that are still out of whack, that are not subject to the things 
you have spoken from your word. Help us with a better attitude and gratitude to this pruning process. Help us with this metaphor to really solidify it in our minds and in our hearts. As we memorize your word, read your word, as we pray your word, sing your word, and speak of your word, that you would use it to prune us for our good, our joy, and for your glory. And for the world at large, I do pray that they would be able to look inside of Grace Church Monterey Bay and they would be able to see that we are true disciples by our love for you and for one another. Father, do this in us and through us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.